Hello and welcome to episode two of Confessions from the Witness Box, where we are very lucky this week to be joined by Edward Shaw, uh, partner at DLA Piper. <laughs> it is a mouthful. Now, first of all, welcome very much uh, to Edward. Sorry, is it Ed or Edward? Uh, well, so my Christian name is Edward. That's how I sign letters and things, and that's when I get a from my mum and my wife. They're the two that tend to call me that, but Ed, Ed to all my friends. So uh, happy for us to proceed on the basis of Ed. <laughs> and, again, the joys of LinkedIn means we can all find out far more about each other than, <laughs> than we would generally share when we first meet somebody. Uh, but according to your LinkedIn, you went to university in Dundee. That's right. Um, and interestingly, I went to a Scottish in, uh, university to uh, to read English and history. I love my time there. I have to say, I think I got a better education in many ways than I would have done otherwise. So, Well, I think the other slightly ironic thing about going to Dundee to read English is that according to uh, Scottish Field um, website, so scottishfield.co.uk, uh, in their 10 I'm interesting... I'm obviously. Indeed. In their 10 fascinating facts about Dundee, uh, quite high up top of the list is the fact that um, William uh, McGonagall was born in Dundee and lived there. He was, he was a fascinating character, um, well known to us when we were there um, for being mad as a box of frogs. <laughs> um, and came up with some wonderful verse, and um, and I think there was one that he said, you, "You're in Dundee. There is no doot when you can see the Blind Institute, which is just <laughs> madness." But the Blind Institute was a building that you can see as you come in on the train line across the famous Tay, Tay railway bridge, um, which had a terrible accident in the 1800s. You can see it as you come in. And anyway, this mad man who was a sort of self-proclaimed poet laureate was uh, came up with some stellar. Stella rhymes that being one example. But of course, Dundee is now famous for having the new VNA and being a real revivalist city and uh, an exciting place to be. And, and, and people from Aberdeen will shoot me down. This was always a rumour when I was uh, studying there that um, Dundee was actually better placed to um, take the oil industry when it first kicked off because of its its infrastructure, because its infrastructure was in place from the Victorian era when it, it had huge trade in, you know, it's famous for the three J's, the jute, jam and, jam and jam and journalism. And the jute trade in particular were, and trade links with Russia meant that it had a lot of port infrastructure in place. It actually had a very small airport as well. And everything in Aberdeen, which is now an incredibly wealthy city in relative terms um, because of the oil trade, um, rumour has it that there was a little bit of a backhander that got <laughs> Aberdeen the gig, so to speak. But uh, anyway, I say that without um, without absolute knowledge. That was just what was said when I was a student there. Um, well, of course, with regards to the ports and, and, the, and the infrastructure there, that's where you got the... The, the wealthy section of Dundee, which is Grotty Ferry, oh, which, which I'm sure I'll get shot for saying that. Because it's... <laughs> and one of my old one of my old uni friends still lives up there and lives in Grotty Ferry, and I keep telling her she's made it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and after Dundee, you then went to York University, also the, the, the College of Law at York. That's right, and I'm one of a select. Well, I say select. There was a sort of a twenty year window. I think it was one of it was third maybe of the College of Laws to open up in the early 90s and I went in the late 90s and then it, it carried on for another sort of 10-15 years after that so there was a sort of a 20-year window where this place was open and then eventually they closed it down shortly after it became the University of Law you know very very highbrow um, and moved to Leeds I think for commercial reasons um, but uh, it was a great place actually because it was in an old school 
complex out next to the railway course um, by Middlethorpe Hall. Um, and we just had this, we just had a great time there for the two years. I went there because I grew up in Yorkshire and it's sort of relatively close to home without being so close that I had to live at home. Yeah. There's a pub there called the Naves Mire where we all used to go and have, um, you know, beers after lectures and what have you. And then regards to the clubs in York, were you a fan of um, Ziggy's or were you more a fan of Toffs? <laughs> well, depending on which day of the week it was. <laughs> um, uh, Ziggy's was a sort of more of a Thursday, Friday job, whereas Toffs was a Wednesday occasion. And then, you know, you might go to uh, the, um, oh God, what was it called? That Silks, Silks, if you went on a Saturday night. Yeah. But, you know, obviously I didn't go every day of the week. That was just depending. Um, and having then gone into the law, you decided to focus on construction. But what tried to draw you towards construction law rather than um, any of the other facets? I was. It's, it's, now we're getting into the sort of more um, um, sort of uh, studious element of it. I was always fascinated by the technical stuff. I mean, on the one hand, I always look at it and think I went and did an English and history degree, and then ended up doing something in many ways very scientifically driven and, and very technical. Um, but I just I just enjoyed um, the sort of the the triumvirate that all construction disputes have, which is that there's the heavy fact dependent element of it. There's a lot of law, um, and there's the technical expertise. And I just like the fact that you you, you know that basically every case we ever have has a high element of all of those three things. I found it particularly interesting. And I thought to myself, you know, if I'm going to do this for a long time, which unfortunately financially I'm going to have to, um, <laughs> um, I better make sure that it's something that keeps me on my toes and keeps me interested for the whole whole of my career. Because so, uh, you've yeah, you, you worked on some absolutely sort of mammoth projects between uh, $1.5 billion oil refinery, uh, nuclear decommissioning, chemical processing, a, a lot of the very, very technical, the, the very ME heavy um, and very large scale um, disputes and projects. Yeah. And, 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 and one of the things I really like as well is although once you've done a couple of those cases, um, you uh, you start to remember them when it all comes around. But um, I just like getting really involved in the industry and getting a, a proper understanding of um, some of the commercial pressures of those industries. So take, for instance, you talked about the chemical process plan. I remember the first one of those I did, learning as part of that case, not just about the technical aspects of how to build um, a PET plant, PET plant in that instance, but also... Um, um, some of the pressures in terms of where those plants are being built over the world, around the world, where the um, where the uh, where the product is coming from, where there's a, an excess of supply, where there's a shortage of supply, what the you know what the financial pressures are on those businesses, where they can sell, where they can um, face some difficulties. I had a, a case a bit later on, which was a chemical process plant in the US, and the the, the story went that as and when completed, it would be the biggest process plant in the world um, and would something like double US capacity for um, pet, pet bottle production. Yeah. It's just staggering numbers. Yeah. But, but also do you find that as you go to different pressures within the different industries, you get a very different approach to contracting and a different attitude towards disputes. So the attitude of how you can best ma- mitigate and manage risk within a um, oil refinery project compared to when you're now doing something like a nuclear decommissioning um, uh, project. Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, you take one-off projects 
Um, and it, it, it produces a totally different attitude, I think, to um, projects which are part of um, an overall uh, um, upscaling or whatever it might be. So some of the disputes I've done in recent years are a concern um, oil refineries, and there's one where it was the whole refinery, whereas there's one where it was particular components of that refinery, and each and every one of those components were, you know, multi-hundred million dollar um, uh, contracts all on a sort of EPC basis. Yep. And it does make a different attitude. And the, the nuclear decommissioning project as well is fascinating because it's such a long term, you, you know, it's a 30 plus year term that the parties are involved in it. And actually the willingness just to get into a dispute is every, everything is sort of magnified and the timeframes are magnified. I remember talking to one of the um, engineers that we were dealing with on that particular case and he sort of made a point about, you know, a gatepost is a gatepost, Ed, except for when it's within a nuclear compound, even though it's the same gatepost because of yes. the number, number of health and safety yep. um, issues that you have to go through. It takes months more to get the final approval on signing off. It's the same gatepost as you get outside your school crack. <laughs> Well, but but the weird thing though was with nuclear decommissioning, I was involved with one, and it seemed that because of when these things were originally built and uh, the how they were built, there was a lot that was wasn't known. You think that anything, any kind of decommissioning, you're going to know exactly what you're going to find, and it's all going to be well well documented, well processed, and well planned. And the one we had. Um, a massive dispute, dispute erupted uh, because of asbestos fibres within the concrete and it just wasn't documented or properly known until they actually commenced that section of decommissioning. Uh, actually, the, the extent to which there was asbestos present in the walls. Um, and I think the fun thing with construction is that there's always unknown complexity and there's always going to be variations and changes uh, no matter how well you think you've buttoned down the contract at the start. Yeah. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And and the the, the nuclear power job I did um, a, a little while ago was um, what was interesting about that was it was a it was a, a particular type of nuclear fuel RBMK. I always get that wrong. RBMK or IMBK. RBMK, um, which was a um, a Russian um, component. And it's this, it, the the power plant I dealt with was an evolution of the Chernobyl power plant. Yeah. And there was a huge amount of emotive reaction just to that conceptually throughout the course of the case. Because everyone thinks, for instance, that you know Chernobyl had that terrible explosion, and uh, and and is just a big hole in the ground. Naturally, it's not. You know, there's no. three functioning. There's three functioning reactors there still. Yeah. That was an especially interesting case, I think, in that way, because finding an expert who knew the RMBK mm. fuel and around that was practically impossible because it was very much, a, um, to use sort of eighties expression, it was very much an Eastern Bloc concept. Yeah. Um, you know, so so just getting to the bottom of that was really really hard. Coming back briefly onto your career, so so uh, you're now a partner at DLA Piper uh, uh -huh. within the London office, and just to give an indication of this of the size um, of DLA Piper, when I typed in your name into the Our People box, there's actually five Mr. Shaws uh, that work <laughs> at DLA Piper. <laughs> yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me. Um, I have a couple of colleagues, I can think of three off the top of my head, actually, who have exactly the same name. So I think I'm the only Edward Shaw at DLA Piper. But, you are, um, yes. <laughs> I, um, uh, I, have a, I have a partner at my firm who shares a name with uh, one of the BD um, personnel. So and, and he gets very frustrated because they get each other's emails. Says it, it does get quite amusing. Some people are philosophical about it. Others get quite irate about it. <laughs> <laughs> In relation to receiving each other's emails. 
Correct. Yeah. yeah. And insisting that they have middle letters put into their email convention and things like that. <laughs> it's quite interesting. The most recent interesting one was the fact that um, uh, one of my, I think he is still technically one of my partners, is the, what is he, the, the, the first, sorry, the, the first second gentleman of the United States. So Kamala Harris's husband is yes. a, is a, is a still, I think, a current partner of DLA, although he's indicated that he's stepping away from that. I, I suspect that um, being the first second um, uh, partner in the, in the, of the White House, I suspect he probably will find himself stepping away from that role. Uh, a big conflict of interest issue, I think. Just somewhat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Moving on back to uh, kind of a starting topic, really, in relation to arbitration and the joy of working with expert witnesses. Now, now you said that one of the things that you like, which is quite an unusual thing to hear, but one of the things that you like about construction is that you get to work with um, a, a, wide, a wide range of um, interesting and, and varying people um, <laughs> who sometimes have the pleasure of being called experts. Um, <laughs> yeah, true. Um I think where it can get quite entertaining as well is in, I think it's fair to say that in, in arbitration in particular, where um, uh, you get the potential for different jurisdictions, what have you, the scope for meeting experts who perhaps don't have the same attitude towards sort of CPR style impartiality yes. um, is, is certainly increased. Um, and occasionally you come across it um, and uh, it can be frustrating, but wildly entertaining in equal measure, I think. Uh, I think it was well, well, on the other side, of course, not on your side. But. Well, indeed, it, it, well, I think from our side, it becomes incredibly frustrating when you get to joint statements and also when you get to trying to deal with reply reports. But I think it's something which, if you have a skilled legal team, it really comes out in cross-examination and it, it really shines through when it comes to um, actually giving evidence. Um, but in addition to having experts that come from different jurisdictions and sometimes have a different approach to uh, the process of giving evidence and impartiality. Do you find that sometimes experts, by their pure nature being experts um, in a very small niche specialist field, have an amazing ability to latch on to one small irrelevant part of the case and refuse to give it up? Yeah, I've had that. And I've had experts also sort of thinking that they're because they're experts on a particular issue they can comment on all issues and trying to separate <laughs> out separate out um particular points can be really really difficult and say no 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 no. this expert's talking about that you need to focus on these things and yes. uh, that, that 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 too can be challenging i was thinking about this and i had um i did have an expert a while ago who just in a, in a hearing just would not answer a particular question so it's almost the opposite of what you're asking in terms of latching onto a small point it's just just doggedly wouldn't ask because to his mind that was the wrong question yep you, you wouldn't answer it but the problem was that all it did was tick off the tribunal and and mm. and it didn't do him any favors um the one i had um where the the witness stood up and it was uh, our client's programming person and they said, and you, 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 you understand that um, your your company relies on the um, expert report of so and so. Have you know, as the as the lead programming person who who sort of you know set up the baseline programs back in two thousand and nine or whenever it was, have you read that report? And the answer went back, nope. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Where do we go with this one then? <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a low moment in one of my one of yes. my previous hearings. Yes. <laughs> and that was witness one, you know, that, that was all. <laughs> day, day one, witness one. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. I mean, I suppose at that point in time, the advantage was you can only improve from that point in time. <laughs> So, so, but where, where we have these one, this probably brings on to a question of of um, chess clock arbitration. Uh, where you suddenly have a witness where uh, you may think you have gold dust here, and and you end up having the cross examination dragging on further, you then find yourself losing time or possibly running short of time for witnesses towards the end, which then means that from the quantum point of view, we're always very fortunate that we come last in, in most cases. Um, and you always pray that the other side have wasted all their time on the earlier factual witnesses before they get to you. Um, but this seems to have kind of, it, it brings a whole new element of strategy into the hearings because it's all about making sure you spend your time wisely to maximise your case um, and don't run out of time for important witnesses later on. But is that good from a point of view of just it? It's possibly, possibly might be great for your client where, where, where you have a good strategy, but is it actually good when it comes to justice and the law and getting to the right answer, or is that a limitation of the arbitration process? I, I think to, to answer with a broad point, first of all, I think it is more... Um, uh, it, it tends to happen much more in arbitration because of the, you know, people are crammed into tighter timeframes a lot more. I know that the courts, I don't know whether the, the parties are a bit more focused at that point in time because of, um, you know, the, the, the court censure can be stronger or, or, um, or, but I've never, I've never experienced the checks clock situation. Um, I have experienced it in court court hearings but not to the same extent and mm. um, you know it it, it it is an issue in every arbitration I've dealt with and I do completely see your point um about is it a limitation I'm not sure I suppose I mean you know we all play the game don't we and we all try and work things to our advantage I think there's a lot to be said that if it focus your minds as to what it is you want to ask and the questions you want you need to ask then that will will come out um and, you know they, they, it, it will it will push you in that direction but there is a risk that things get missed um a very big risk and and as you say you know the general course is that you'll go with your 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 factual um evidence in the order in which they they appear um and then, and then you'll go with your expert evidence, and it will tends to be technical, and then delay, and then quantum, yeah. depending on the scale of things. So, you know, it gets to sort of Friday, and the two QSs are on, and and you know, the hearing may or may not extend into the Saturday, but the tribunal might be a bit twitchy because they've got yeah. something to go to. So, you know, there is definitely a risk of that, and, and, and yeah, potentially it is a shortcoming. I've never noticed it to be so bad that I've thought, no, there's something, there's something gone on here. Yeah. Um, I think from a QS point of view, though, and from the quantum side, it's the fact that any any opinion that we express is always um, dependent upon what's been found before. So it's a question of what do you find factually first. Um, if you have, if there's a large delay element. In reality, what you assess your prolongation claim at is secondary to how many days of prolongation do you have. Um, and I think. The assessment of quantum is always one of these ones that you're you're either making sure that 
the amount you have to pay is right or the amount that you get paid is right after you assessed all of the questions of fact and law and uh, delay, technical and everything else, uh, which is why it always comes at the very end. But, but there always seems to be a pressure, though, to try and cram as much in as possible into often a shortened period of cross-examination. And the tribunal never love you to begin with and they hate you even more if it goes into Saturday. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's always your fault. It's not the always. fact that, you know, when, when it's, it's nothing to do with the fact that the instructing solicitors said 18 months previously that you need 14 days for the hearing and they said, well, we can give you 10 or anything like that. <laughs> God forbid. Yeah. Um, we're both very lucky to be largely involved in arbitration, um, I think, for the majority of, uh, of, of our work, uh, which by and large has that added benefit that we get to go to some amazing places. So one of the reoccurring questions is, best location for an arbitration that you've done? Well, uh, that's a good point. I, um, I, I didn't actually have the hearing there, but I remember um, a few years ago having a, a case where I had to go to um, Trinidad for, uh, for the, the site. And I remember looking it up with great joy, thinking, brilliant, <laughs> business class flight, off I go and what have you. And, and everyone's saying, Trinidad and Tobago, that's amazing. Yeah. And then, and then I sort of pointed out that, you know, Tobago is the idyllic paradise island where everyone goes and gets sunshine and, uh, and wonderful cocktails and lounges by a pool. And Trinidad is the industrial and rather violent <laughs> place, <laughs> which is where I was going to be going. <laughs> so yeah that was interesting um i've had hearings in in places like um uh singapore and the, and the like you know where you would expect yes i remember i had a project a couple of years ago where it was an oil refinery in in, in egypt which was fascinating um i can't tell you how excited i was when i got a cab past my first camel on a street um <laughs> Um, to the point where I still get teased by that by the colleague I was with at the time. Um, and it was blisteringly hot. Um, so, yeah, there's sort of lots of examples like that. I do remember going once to um, a client's in Ankara and being surrounded by helicopters and, um, and uh, flying from a nearby military compound and a load of stray dogs that were down the road. And I kind of, I got into the lift to this sort of, you know, kind of headquarters, it's a boardroom. And I sort of, I did a bit like James Bond. I put my feet on the edge so that, <laughs> so that when the floor gave out underneath me, I didn't disappear into the shark tank. But I was thinking about this and actually, and this is, this, this, this runs the risk of being a bit jingoistic, I think, but um, I, I actually think for theatre and for sense of history and sense of responsibility as well, um, the Royal Courts of Justice just take take the breath away in terms yes. of a centre of uh, and a seat of the law. And, you know, I've done hearings um, around the world, but you end up in a hotel, you know, it's the same nameless yeah. hotel, um, might be in a ostensibly flashy location, but you're still in a hotel. But there's something about turning up at the, you know, the courts of the, the old building, yes. the RCJ. And I think especially on the two or three occasions I've been to the Court of Appeal there and, and, and you know, you've sort of taken to these strange kind of little um, hearing rooms where any number of important cases have been heard over the years. There's something just remarkable about that, I think. So, I agree. I think the other one, um, I was very lucky to have been out there um, a couple of months ago where we were still in sort of semi-lockdown but not full lockdown, uh, was the Peace Palace in The Hague. And... 
when we're in the Peace Palace, rather than having the normal breakout rooms that are quite small, uh, because of the need to socially distance and uh, having increased space, our breakout room was one of the smaller hearing rooms. And all around the side, we had all the transcripts and the, um, uh, well, it, it was the full transcripts from all the war crime uh, oh, wow. um, yeah. and everything from kind of the 1940s up until 2008. Um, it just, all the walls were covered in that. And, and again, it's that, it's that sense of history and justice and um, what's what's been uh, heard and held in the place beforehand just makes it quite a special place, I think, for hearings. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think anywhere anywhere like that is just just remarkable, and sort of really reinforces your um, your role, the small but important role you have in kind of continuing that process to the highest possible standard that you can attain. Mm. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, again, the fact that your children have returned from school. How old are your children? Uh, the younger one, who is currently doing a big drawing not far from me, is five. And the elder one, who's doing some handwriting practice, is eight. So, at ages five and eight, do your children have any actual concept of what you do for a living? Um, no, I don't know. Actually, good point. I don't know. I could ask one now if you wanted. Yeah. Alexander, can you come here, please? <laughs> you just come around here. So this gentleman is asking me some questions and he wants to know if you know what it is that I do. Yes, solicitor. And what's a solicitor? Solicitor is a, uh, um, I've forgotten, it's a, um, lawyer, a type it's of a, lawyer. It is a type of lawyer. Um. But you don't really know, do you? Mm. I'll tell you another day. <laughs> so I think the short answer to that is no. No, no. But, but, but to be fair, I, 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 my son's also called um, Alexander, um, and I believe if I asked him the same question, I wouldn't get as far as actually the, the job title. Let, let, let's let him do that. So <laughs> it's good to see you feel so valued, isn't it? Absolutely, <laughs> by, by those whose respect we want the most. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much for. Join us today. It has been a lot of fun to talk to you.